Hi, and welcome to the Expansive Podcast, where we explore the frontiers of personal growth, business innovation, and technology. We believe that growth and progress comes from expanding our minds, exploring new possibilities, and embracing change. My name is Eric Kruger. I'm uh, today one third of the Expansive Podcast, and I am joined, of course, as always, by my ever elegant co-host, John Sane. John, where are you sitting today, dude? Uh, today is Berlin and uh, coming in live from a rainy, cloudy Berlin, which has been such a letdown this summer. I thought I was coming to summer. It's, anyway, it's, it's rainy and cold. Um, <laughs> but more excitingly than Berlin's weather is we are joined by a, a trio, a trio, a third leg to this podcast today. Something new we're trying out at the Expansive because we want to keep adding value to ourselves and also to our listeners. We are joined by a, a new and good friend of mine because... It's like we, I've known Rowan for a very long time. I know of Rowan. I mean, who doesn't if you're in the leadership uh, strategy sort of space, uh, a powerhouse in the space. And we're very, very happy to be joined by Rowan Belchers. And he's coming in live from Cape Town. Rowan, how are you? Very well, thank you. Sunny, beautiful winter's Cape Town morning, looking out over horse paddock. And I'm just so happy to be in conversation with the two of you. Knowing that uh, the three of us are going to nerd out on things that we all love in equal quantities. So I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope we can keep this podcast a little bit succinct, but I, I suspect that it's going to be true to your brand and expansive conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. We're very, very happy to have you. And before we kick off, Eric um, is into leadership and into team building and uh, really comments to me uh, about your work and uh, has done because of LinkedIn and some of the stuff that you've shared. And uh, so I think there's a deep resonance between you guys as well, even though this might be the first time you're actually talking. Uh, but I know both of you and uh, I know the way you come about it with the hot, hot space leadership. And uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation. It's funny how you can learn a lot over LinkedIn and become sort of LinkedIn friends, you know, in quotes. And Eric, I think you and I are yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of the interesting things about the time that we live in is often, especially through the pod, uh, people come to us and they say, you know, we feel like we know you because we've listened to so many hours of you. And we all kind of voyeurs into each other's lives where you see like, oh, Rowan is traveling to the UK. And so like, I know that you have that schedule and I know what you talk about and I know about CEO craft and all of your thinking without ever having spoken to you. Yeah. So it's a very weird dynamic that we actually end up on as like, I kind of know you, but I don't know you. But it's called it's called parasocial relationships, one-sided friendships. Yeah. And so we have a lot of parasocial relationships. The, I think the downside of it, and look, uh, maybe not you two, but comparison is the thief of joy. And so, yes, you have this amazing insight, but then obviously you're human. And for me, I'm like, I'm a bit jealous. There. Oh, that's happening. There. So there's a pro and a con. So, you know, it's, it's both. I'm inspired and also a little bit jealous, to be quite honest, sometimes, you know, when it's, things are happening. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good test of ego when you're a thought leader like the three of us are and you put your stuff out there. <laughs> do you do it with a sense of generosity and humility or do you do it with a sense of trying to impress people? And, and when I write and speak, I often have that little dance in my head about, hey, man, you know, just don't be a persona, just be yourself. Yes. I think that vulnerability actually adds a lot to it. And a lot of our listeners talk about the vulnerability that we share on the pod. Um, I have to like almost dig it out of Eric, but um, he gets it out <laughs> eventually and uh, he pulls it out. But let's kick off. I mean, let, let's kick off. We want to know more about you and we're in conversation about your work and what are you doing? 
So for our listeners who don't know Rowan, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey and where, what's brought you to this space right now that you're working with some amazing CEOs around the world. Tell us about that journey to, to this day. Yeah, thanks, John. Very generous question. Um, I'm going to go back to 1985 when I heard a Pink Floyd song, or I heard Pink Floyd for the first time. And Pink Floyd sang essentially about the drudgery the drudgery of Middle England work life in the mines, in the factories. And I was 12 years old at the time, and I felt when I heard this song, my consciousness leapt forward, leaps for a 12-year-old, because it started getting me to think about this thing about why work was so unenjoyable for people the world over. Yeah, by and large. And it planted the seed in me that work essentially should be joyful and not toilful. And that, that, that sentiment, frankly, has shaped my entire career. Um, I'm a helper by nature. And so when my helping nature merged with this question of why is work so dull, um, that basically uh, started me on my journey as uh, you know, a, a business coach, I, I guess, essentially, but now as an advisor of CEOs. Uh, or two CEOs, because of leverage. The CEO has inordinate leverage. Everyone knows the CEO has leverage, what I think they don't realize, because of this miracle that I call system leadership, where the system leader shapes the system in every way, visible and invisible. CEOs have 10x more leverage than what they probably realize. And in that lies great possibility because if business is our best hope to right the wrongs of things in the world and the challenges that we're facing, and I do believe that is the case, then it can't be done without enlightened, uh, optimistic, conscious CEOs um, who have a different and better and more sophisticated understanding of performance these days. Um, and you know, the, the marker I give to that is, that CEOs need to learn to integrate performance with humanity. If businesses and the world is going to be renewed and business is going to re be rebirthed into something more fit for purpose and right for the times, then it can only come through the doorway of the CEO or the MD or the GM or the founder. It doesn't matter what the title is, but the head honcho needs to be of a certain way. So my journey has been an iterative journey from 1985 and the Pink Floyd song to where I am now, which is uh, basically being a cheerleader and shepherd for CEOs globally who want to do something different with their businesses and they want their business to be a business of consequence and a business that matters. And that is what is firing me up. You can probably hear it in my voice. I'm yeah. full, of, full of vigor for this uh, mission at the moment. Yeah, I love it. I've got goosebumps, man. That's fantastic. Mm. Did you go straight into the realm of business coaching? Like, was there, were there, like, was there a waitering period and, uh, you know, doing other things before you got into that? Or was it so clear for you from the start that this is the direction you're moving in? I was lost in the abyss of the General Electric Financial Management Program in San Francisco and New York thinking that I was a financial manager by trade because my father, two uncles, and a grandfather were all accountants. So I figured that's what I was until I woke up one day realizing that I was absolutely bang average at financial <laughs> management. 
And that was a cue for me, Eric, to uh, pursue something that was more along the lines of my natural talents. Um, and humbly stated, um, you know, I, I, I sense into people and conversations and that's where my talents lie is, uh, seeing the invisible in people and collectively in businesses, seeing, seeing what could be, seeing what's being lost, seeing where value can be retrieved or created. Um, but that all through the, the lens of people. So no, it was not a direct journey, but I do, I am happy that the GE financial management program, which is like bootcamp, um, gave me some rigorous business skills to underpin my people skills. Mm. So you went from that into the next phase was? The next phase was moving back to South Africa in 2001. And because the market was so immature here, I uh, very boldly decided to become a people's person with not a second of people experience and uh, sort of found my way through. And uh, yeah, that was 20 plus years ago now. So um, the, the wild west of South Africa in the early 2000s essentially allowed me to do something that I don't think I would have been able to do in San Francisco, New York, simply because the markets were too mature. And yeah, that's fantastic. And, and tell me, uh, Rowan, how do you work with these CEOs? What, what does the engagement look like? How long do you kind of stay with them? Do you go into their organizations? Like what is the nitty gritty of that happens in those situations? Are they all different or? They're all different, John, because they all have to match where the CEO is at the time. And, you know, we're all on a journey of sort of call it consciousness, awareness or development, whatever the word might be. And you've got to meet CEOs where they are. Some have burning questions that they have a deep desire to answer. Some have a sense of something changing in the world that they know that they need to be a little bit more in line with. Some are going through deep um, problems, toil, challenges, and they need to be met in a certain way. So, so the nuance for me is to, is to tune into the CEO and their business and to figure out just what's possible in that moment because not everything is possible immediately. Um, so the relationships I have are some span 15 years and come in and out. Um, some, some are orthodox coaching, not many of them. Um, some are long nature walks, exploring big questions. Some are broad business engagements where we're trying to move a business from point A to point B. They, they, they really differ and I have to take into account A, where they are at, but B, what their learning style is as well. Because, um, you know, what, one of the things that a friend mentioned to me once he said, people are either drawn to complexity or not drawn to complexity. And I have to make that assessment upfront where the CEO is or isn't because that affects my engagement, the questions I ask, the type of uh, challenges that they are willing or keen to face or not. And so it's a very, very um, variable engagement style. It's very intimate, but very... That, that's so funny you say that. I was listening to Adam Grant uh, pod the other day and he was talking about the two types of people. You have people that are boredom avoidant and you have people that are um sort of stress avoidant and he was talking that you know the introverts are stress they don't want stress and then the people that are always scared of being bored want the high stress and so you have this i want complexity i don't want complexity so like it's extroverts introverts and and now what you're trying to do sometimes trying to get an introvert to look for risk and he's like i don't want to be part of this you know so those polarities are interesting. One of the interesting polarities that came across my desk the other day around CEOs was that CEOs are either visionaries or integrators. 
And I thought I found that quite interesting because the integrators are the one who operate sort of in the Greek term out of logos, you know, logic, rational process. And then on the other side of the spectrum are the CEOs that operate from a place of mythos, mysticism, mythology, imagination, creativity. And I think for CEOs, in fact, maybe for anyone, it's a really good distinction to make because those two don't have a lot of middle ground. I, I think if middle ground can be created, it's very, very powerful. But generally, it's one versus the other. You know, that's funny because the FMB CEO, the guy who won CEO of the year, what was his name? He was famous. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was almost visionary. And then the next CEO that came in was very operational. He was almost like, and I guess organizations need both, right? You need one person that's pushing you and then somebody to stabilize and then somebody to push you and then somebody to stabilize. Because I think one continuously, like, what would you say on that? I would say, John, that um, seasonality is a very underappreciated concept in personal growth and business evolution because the seasons are important. The changes are important so that varying muscles can be created. Um, you know, if you push innovation as a business solely and all the time, it's going to be a business that jumps around too much. And at some point, those innovations need to be bedded down a lot of no's need to be said to new ideas. Um, and, and so I think seasonality is important. Sometimes there's a time for expansiveness. Sometimes there's a time for consolidation. Sometimes there's a time for risk. Sometimes there's a time for being conservative. And, and you know, there's multiple examples we can give on that landscape. But um, I think just for your listeners to be aware, and this is why like really smart people pay such close attention to moon cycles. Because it, it guides them to say, okay, so this isn't a time to be aggressive about a business opportunity. This is a time just to consider where I am and make sure that it's the right. It, it just gives a, it gives a, it makes life and work not an unending route march. It gives it downs and lefts and rights. And I think for an organization and an individual, it's a really powerful insight. I think, you know, the, the one thing that I'm already just sensing from, I mean, from your engagement with the CEOs, but also just from this conversation is that we have to develop nuance. And I think what it's something that gets lost these days. We just want answers. We want certainty. And when you embrace and accept that everything kind of lies in the nuance, it means you have to let go of those certainties. And you have to know that there's going to be a time for this and there's going to be a time for that. And it'll depend on what is happening in the world around you. And your ability to cultivate that self and situational awareness will inform where you go and how you show up in that moment. And uh, like playing further into the polarities thing, right? Transformational leadership, transactional leadership, wartime CEO, peacetime CEO. There's so much of it. There's so much of this cycling that needs to happen. Um, but I, I agree with you that I think we just get stuck in a certain mode and we just, we, like that just becomes our thing and we just carry on with that until failure. And then we go, okay, now I need to change. Instead of having the nuance to go, oh, something has shifted here. I need to shift with it. And I remember seeing something around our expectations. Actually, the expectation that you have of how things should unfold creates the trap, creates the blindfold or the, the, the blinders that you go, okay, this is what I'm expecting to see. And so even if you see different things, it's almost like you don't see it because you are so tied to this expectation. And because of that, you become um, rigid. That's the word, rigid. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, can, can I add an adjective to that? I, I hosted a dinner for CEOs in Cape Town last night, and my, my good friend and very excellent public speaking coach, Richard Mulholland, um, he talks about the gas tank. Do you know what the gas tank is? Um, so right at, right at front in a, in, a, um, in a presentation or keynote, whatever it is, you have to, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the podcast, it's the give a shit tank. Um, you, you've got to make your audience give a shit about something. And so right up front, my provocation to my group of CEOs last night was that they are dull. So um, the dulling happens because business is really hard. It's really exacting and it takes a lot from people. So Eric, to what you were talking about earlier around realizing when you need to pick up on nuance or see things that you might otherwise not see, if a business leader is dull, you don't even notice that. It is just one long homogenous route march, which is a really low performance way of orientating. And if performance is what all business leaders want at the end of the day, and that's performance with a, you know, in the profound way with a capital P, then being dull is really a low performance orientation. And I think that is the big challenge for business right now and it's showing up all over the world is that people have lost their sense of spark around work work has become toilful and there's a big challenge to businesses globally now to rewire the what business is what work is what a career is because all of those are stuck in in what i call a complexity which is like a knot of beliefs and if your complexity around work is that work equals drudgery or work equals survival or work equals endurance. That is what it is going to be. And, and the challenge here, Eric, is to, is to escape that dullness so that we become more aware of what's going on around us so that we can use it to our advantage. I'm not in a Machiavellian way, but in you know, new ideas, new possibilities, new approaches, things that need to be cut away and left behind. Those all rely on being aware and sensitized to your environment. And I think what business generally does because of the pressures of business is that business can dull people, not everyone, but in the majority of the 3.3 billion people who are currently working in the world, I would, I would hazard a guess, Eric, that 90 plus percent of us, and I include myself in that, are dulled to some degree. And, you know, that is a really dangerous, unhelpful place to be. And I think it is the challenge of business at the moment is how to renew itself, how to rebirth itself so that it is more high-performing, more orientated to the world we live in, more aware, more sensitized, and thus more high-performing. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions, actually, based on what you just said. When you talk about creating the spark and the dullness that develops over time, obviously the antidote to that dullness is that we, we must become more intentional again in how we do things. You have to take responsibility for sharpening the edge, whatever that might look like. So a, a two-pronged question. One is, how do you personally in your own life, how do you cultivate intentionality? What does that look like for you? to have a practice around being more intentional and then finding or creating that spark. And then the second part is, once you then start
start working with CEOs and, and with their teams, what does that look like? How do we help people to find that spark for themselves in the work they do and escape that monotony and the automation of it? Great question. Thanks, Eric. I, I'm going to take my time answering them and I'm going to answer it by way of for sure. an anecdote up front, if I may. So the, the remarkable Irish poet David White used to meet with a monk to, to recite poetry together. And they used to recite poetry, I think a German poet by the name of Rilke. Um, and one evening, David showed up and he said, you know, I am so exhausted. What do I do? And the monk said, David, the opposite of exhaustion is not being re-energized. It is being wholehearted, which I thought was such an interesting insight. And so intentionality, Eric, for me, serves the goal of wholeheartedness, not focus or energy, but actually being wholehearted in myself. And how I do that, and this is, I, I'm not recommending this, this is just my way, is I have 13 stabilizers that I check off every day. Some days I do all 13, some days I do three, but I mark them every single day. The uh, colored in dot means I did it and open dot means I didn't. And they include things like prayer, like exercise, like uh, connecting with a friend, reading, um, getting in cold water, just a whole bunch of things that work for me. And, and that's how I set my intentionality. But just to reiterate, it is to serve the end goal of being wholehearted, not necessarily fit. So, so, so that's, that, that, that's my personal um, approach. In terms of when I work with teams and CEOs, Eric, what I'm focusing on at the moment is this idea of building businesses that matter as the bedrock of businesses. And when I say matter, I mean essentially a business of consequence as opposed to a business of inconsequence. And many businesses, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, many businesses are mechanical. We create a product, we try and sell a product, we take a salary, we go home. And for many, 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 many people, most people, that is the experience of business. So what I try to get businesses to recognize is what is consequential about them and what is something that matters to them, an unscratchable itch that never goes away, that powers their wholeheartedness. Because if a business is underpinned by bedrock of mattering, of consequence, then what follows has natural flow and energy to it that you don't have to go and create or resurrect or retrieve. It's there because it's an unscratchable itch. It's almost like a well that never runs dry. And when things get hard, as they invariably do in business, having that well, whatever it is, it can be anything. I'm absolutely agnostic about what mattering means. But if a business can find what matters, then it is a competitive advantage that will never, ever run out. And that is the goal for CEOs now is to turn their businesses from being mechanical to being consequential. And if they, if they can cross that chasm, they are operating in an entirely new area of possibility, of potential, of performance, of joyfulness, of reward, of fulfillment, you name it. It's all on the table, but it's all off the table if a business can't find that unscratchable itch. 
I, I love what you're saying, um, Rowan. I, I have a similar approach around this is the industrial revolution never asked us to access our genius and our creativity. It asked us to fit a system. And so the system has created drudgery because we've become robots and spokes in the wheel. And as we start to arrive at this new world, it's almost as if we have to change our consciousness and our awareness and access different parts of our creativity. And that quite literally is a task on its own because you have to start thinking about thinking. And when you start to access new ways of thinking, this creativity becomes obvious, you know? And um, for me, because of my work with Dr. Joe Dispenza, it's, it's the difference between a high beta brainwave and an alpha brainwave. And we have become addicted to a high beta brainwave without even realizing we become addicted to it. You know, we outcome-based, it's like, it's this anxiousness that's embedded into our realities. And so what you're actually talking is, how do we create a, a new awareness that gives us new opportunities and shows us new solutions that we could have otherwise not seen when we're in that drudgery? So I think this heart-centeredness and that heart wholeness is such a poignant word because I often tell my clients, the agricultural era was about your muscles. The industrial era was about your brain. The quantum era is about your heart. The access to creativity is different. Your currency is different. Adaptability becomes a brand new thing. So I guess we're all talking about the same things, coming at it from very different ways. I want to just touch on your time with David in Ireland, because I remember you were going to go spend, what was it, a walking tour? Tell us a little bit about that. I know it's a bit of a caveat away from leadership, but I've heard such amazing things about this guy and from many people, and I know you've experienced some time with him. So give us a little bit about that and, uh, uh, and that experience. Yeah, so David, uh, I think I'd start by saying this. Um, David talks about poetry as being the thing that teaches people how to be dangerous again. What? That's and, Eric's and, thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously dangerous needs to be uh, interpreted in the right way. And and it, I guess that the better word is poetry teaches people how to be alive again. And so David embodies everything you'd want from a poet. You know, he's a dashing Irishman, he's good looking and he's got flair and he's everything you'd want from a poet. So a group of 30 of us met in a Southern Irish town by the name of Bally Vaughan, uh, people from all over the world different backgrounds, you know, billionaire investors from Los Angeles to uh, teachers from uh, Chile um, and everything in between. And essentially, we spent a week um, doing poetry in the morning, walking in the afternoon and sitting in an Irish pub drinking Guinness in the evening. And you can imagine when, when 30, 30 fairly conscious, aware people get together for a week, it's such a high vibrational environment, especially when surrounded by poetry. And so you can imagine that the, the, the conversations were extraordinary, but getting back to your point about thinking about thinking, that's essentially what the week was about. A very, very dense opportunity to think with people of a particular worldview. And I cannot tell you the leaps ahead in personal development I made just by being around well, talking about poetry and, uh, you know, get, getting back to um, being undulled, it was probably the most undulling experience I've had in my life. Um, and, uh, and there's a learning. Who is David? Sorry, I'm, I'm not clued in. 
David White, the poet, W-H-Y-T-E, an Irish poet, very widely published, does a lot of work in corporations, um, and essentially is doing this very same work that all three of us are doing, which is how to make businesses more alive, more responsive, more sensitized, uh, more intelligent places to be. So David White, really worth following. Yeah, he's exceptional. I've seen some of his work, you know. He's, uh, he's almost like a mystic in a way. It's, like, it's weird because he has such a powerful way with words and, and, and what he's doing in the world. Eh? And, and you're right, he's got that flair of that Irish man with the hair and he fits the bill, you know. He really does fit the bill. And I think the interesting thing here, you know, just as a sort of a conceptual philosophical question is, does, does something like poetry have a place in business? You know, if you'd asked that question 50 years ago, it would have been an absolute automatic no. But I think, you know, if, if businesses are looking for different ways to become more vital, then things like poetry, and not only poetry, but other things like it, they are the things that bring humanity back into work. And if I had to encapsulate the intention of all of my work into one neat phrase, it would be how businesses can learn to integrate humanity with performance. And John, getting back to your creativity point, that's just one of many aspects of humanity that need to come back into business, not as a nice to have. It's not asking your HR department to put on a wellness day. That's not integrated. That's not adding to performance. That's just a box ticking exercise. And it's a noble one. So I get it. But if businesses really want to renew, and if they really want to be on a path that is not going to deplete and distort people, then humanity needs to be understood in a more sophisticated way and integrated with performance so that it is an enabler, not this sort of extraneous thing that we do on the outside or the periphery of businesses. And I think anyone listening to the podcast today that is interested in performance, I would really recommend you just harbor your thoughts in this idea of how does humanity get integrated with performance so that humanity is not a nice to have, not a sort of a bolt on, but a core, core part of the fabric and the DNA and the blueprint of a business. If a business gets that right, they are in a whole different territory of performance, in my opinion. Ron, your, your, your passion comes through so, uh, so like, I mean, you can feel it, right? And what you're talking about. You said creativity is one. What would you say some others are? I'd love to like, tap into that. Yeah, I think uh, the, the basics. And I, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's surprising, but I think imagination is important. I think empathy is important. I think conscious awareness is important. I think wisdom is important. I think perspective is important. I think full expression is important. And, and you might ask why these are important in business. Well, well, let's take strategy for an example. Strategy can be a goal-setting exercise when it's done badly. But when done well, strategy is a quest. It's, got, it's full of intrigue. It's, you know, how do I get more out of this? How do I do better than my competitors? How do I figure out a way through a market that seems blocked off to me uh, that can realize gains and shareholder value and value creation for the business? Well, then strategy is a different ballgame and people are compelled by it. They're drawn in. It becomes something of a, an exercise 
an expedition rather than a route march. And so these are the things that bring regular business processes to life and imbue them with really valuable, high-value inputs like imagination and vision. You take imagination and vision out of strategy, then you just, you're a me-too business doing the same as everyone else. So, so that's where humanity and performance come together. And I could make that same argument for innovation, for culture, for talent development, for customer relationships, for branding. All of those are in the same boat. If you can view those with humanity, they become profoundly better. And that's the learning, I think, on the table for CEOs now is learn the sophisticated, nuanced art of integrating humanity with performance. Ron, can you give me an example of a business that you've either worked with or know about where you think they really exemplify what you're talking about here? Like they're really able to bring humanity and performance together. What does that look like? What have you seen in practice that actually looks like? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to choose the obvious ones. I mean, people truck Patagonia out all the time and, you know, deservedly so, because if there's any business that has integrated humanity and made humanity a competitive, competitive advantage, it is them. But, you know, I, I'll give you a small example of a company I'm working with outside Cape Town. They're a billion rand, massive, massive, sorry for all the vegetarians listening to this, but they are the largest, <laughs> the largest abattoir in the Southern Hemisphere. So they are a huge, huge business. What matters and what is consequential to that business is that they support this town called Ribic Castile, about an hour and a half outside Cape Town. They keep this town going. They keep it on its feet. They employ four and a half thousand people. And every single thing that this business does is dedicated to that singular outcome. Now, people can say, well, is that humanity? Well, I'd argue it is because they're not in business to create profits, even though they do a lot of them, but they are driven by something bigger that appeals to the heart. And when you have something that matters, just to go on a slight tangent here, there are four yields that a business leader is looking for. Willingness, hope, ambition, and generosity. That's what you get out of good, lead, uh, out of good leadership. That's the payback. And so when you have something that matters, like this business has, they get automatic willingness, hope, generosity, and ambition. And so that's where it becomes competitive, Eric, because those aren't small things. You get those yields from humans in your business, four and a half thousand humans in this case, then you're on a different wicket. So, so this is a small example and not a high profile example of a business that is made and it's not just purposefulness, because purposefulness has become a bit of a box-ticking exercise these days. This is bigger than that. It's humanity. And when you harness that, as I say, you get into a whole different field of possibility. So that's an example. I could give you more, but it's a nice, realistic one. Great. Um, as we start to start wrapping up now, if uh, somebody on the ground is listening to this and they're not exceptionally a top CEO that you are uh, coaching. <clears throat> and I know you've brought humanities into this a lot, but how does somebody become a more effective leader? What would you say the steps are for them to follow? And I'm thinking, you know, we have a lot of people listening to the pod that are IT people and like, you know, they have their own little businesses. So there's leadership across all these layers and from many countries in the world, male, female, whatever. 
what are the maybe three, four, five steps that these people can become more effective in their leadership um, in their own way? Yeah, thanks, John. It's a very generous question. So I would start by saying this. Many leaders that I work with are focused on knowledge acquisition. So they read all the books and they listen to the podcast, and that's really good. It's an important element of leadership. But there are two other elements, one of which is wholly underestimated. So the second skill, the second element of leadership is skill. How do you do strategy? How do you do culture? How do you do talent? How do you do innovation? How do you do brand? Those are technical skills that are learned, that are learnable. But it's the third one that is underappreciated, which is character. So great leaders have character, skill, and knowledge. And if anyone is interested in going on a leadership journey of self-development, you've got to have that lens in place. The second thing I'd say is you've got to be able to scratch. You've got to have an unscratchable itch in you that leads to your purposefulness being abundant and always available. And that is a quest. That's a journey. You know, your, your career, let's say we only have one career. Uh, while we live on this earth, our one lap around the sun. Is that going to be a career that is imbued with everything that it can be? Or are you going to settle for something less than that? And that's, you know, everyone chooses differently on that spectrum. So no judgment. But to have something that pumps inside you that matters, that you can channel into your career would be point two. Point three, I would say, is you've got to have a growth mindset because leadership of yesterday and leadership of tomorrow are entirely different things. We would not be talking about humanity in performance 50 years ago, but now we are. And 50 years from now, we're going to be talking about something wholly different as being part of leadership. So to have a growth mindset and have this sense of curiosity about what is, what is emerging in the world, what is emerging in me. And how do those two things intersect? That's a really big question to ask and answer. But if you can, and if you can go about that in a characterful and a skillful and a knowledgeable way, that is a pretty solid blueprint for becoming a good leader, in my opinion. I love that. What is emerging in the world and what is emerging in me? And combining that, that hyper-awareness of self and world uh, and then integrating that into your behavior and characteristic on an ongoing basis. I mean, that's a superpower, eh? I mean, that's a real superpower to be hyper aware, um, focused on how this is integrating into yourself and into the world. Um, Eric, you do you want to close off uh, with the... Well, I, I, have, I have one more question. Um, actually, I'm lying. I have like a ton of questions uh, that I actually want to still ask. Like, I, I've also got so my list of, get you yeah, back exactly. for round two. I've also got a bunch of questions here <laughs> yeah, still going. Yeah. It's always funny with the interview because like we, we're having this, uh, we're having a conversation, we're going down certain tangents and you go on a different tangent, but you're like, ah, oh, I had so many questions still about this other tangent, but then you, you can't just, you can't just bring it back. And like, so I've, I've pinned them for the next conversation. Uh, what I, what I wanted to ask just in closing maybe is, We've spoken a bit about your intentionality and, and how you keep yourself focused and, and sharp during the day, how that contributes to that wholeheartedness that you aspire to. Uh, I'm just curious about other self-development processes you might be engaging in or, or busy with. Like you, for example, you mentioned this moon cycles thing. To what extent like, is that a part of your 
life? Like, is that something that you're actively looking at as well? Or was that just a metaphor? Or was that really something that you go and you're like, okay, this is where the moon is at. And, you know, it impacts me in my certain ways of thinking. Maybe just at a, at a deeper or esoteric level, like what else do you do from a self-development point of view? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, look, I, I think in a, a caveat's important here is that self-development is a very personal choice. And, I, and I'm very, very skeptical of people who position their self-development way as being the way. So what I'm going to talk to is my way, and it in, is in no way expected to be applicable to everyone out there. So, and in fact, what I'd say is one of the big questions to answer in life is what is the best way we develop or I develop? Um, if you can answer that question, again, you're on a whole different tra trajectory. Um, Eric, I, I develop myself through alone time, through thinking, through writing. I find that I, uh, I'm hyper aware. So I, I accumulate all these data points all over the place. I just see things. I actually see more than I'd like to see. It can be overwhelming. So I require assimilation. If I don't have an, an opportunity to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, I, I can get fragmented. And so, so that's my outcome for my personal development is to make sure that I'm not fragmented and that I'm whole. And that requires thinking, thinking about things and holding things in my mind and holding questions and observing myself. That's just my way. There's reading in there, there yeah, there's podcasts, there's poetry walking to us. You know, they all contribute. But really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that I do not become fragmented. And, and that's why alone time and time out is important for me, possibly more than the average person. Um, therapy is helpful for me. I enjoy that, although it has limited uses and seasons to it. The moon cycle thing, I'm early, early on in that process, but it's not just a metaphor. You can go online and see where the moon cycles are in your neck of the woods at any point and see what phase of the four phases of the moon you're in. And so I, I'm sort of learning about this still. I'm, I'm not an expert in any way, but what it has given me in this case is just a sense of breaking up the month into something a little bit more user-friendly and a little bit less homogenous. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about ancient wisdom, there was so much to do with solstice and equinox and planting and harvesting and setting intentions, new moons, old moons. These are ancient wisdoms that I think have been lost on us. But if we really get sensitive and become aware of what's going on in us, when there's just the super full moon that was on just a couple of days ago, so much was coming up. It felt like there was a bus on my heart. It felt like I couldn't, like, I just couldn't expand my heart, you know, no matter how much meditation I did. And when we started to realize with my, with my partner, Wendy, we started to realize it was full moon. We're like, we released ourselves into it. We're like, okay, this is just the time that this is what's happening. It's not going to last forever. This is just, you know, and, um, really important to become aware of those nuances of the seasons, the moons, and, and, and what's going on out there. So I think it's really just so profound that you're bringing that into this sort of very masculine business world, bring this sort of in and bleeding it in. And I've heard you use words like divinity and uh, these sort of things in our conversations, you know, and bringing this language in is, is, is controversial in, in many ways, but uh, I think really important to bring a more femininity, bring a more symbiosis into the space. And I secretly do follow all of these. I don't really say them to my audiences or that sort of thing, but uh, I'm also very much on that, on that sort of esoteric plaque. 
Yeah, I think, John, just to say one more thing, I know we're going to wind up soon. Um, I, I think the kicker there, John, is that if all of this stuff, divinity, meditation, consciousness, awareness, a lot of terms that people like rejecting, if it is, or not, not like rejecting, but are skeptical of in the business world, if it is tied to performance, it has credibility. If it is enabling of performance, it has credibility. So the whole thing that business models into the world is excellence, standards, and performance. That's business's gift. So any of these extraneous ideas or ideas that people might think are extraneous, if they are locked into performance, they are no longer extraneous, in my opinion. Then they are worthy and credible and um, worth thinking about. And that's, you know, even if there's something that I said, I recognize that some of what I say is a little bit leading edge. If anyone experiences it as leading edge, don't reject it. Just plant it in the back of your mind and see in the next two, five, ten years whether that actually comes to pass as being something credible. My suspicion is that it will or that it has. But just be careful about projecting too many of these ideas out of hand because I firmly believe that business is headed. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. This has been fascinating, Rowan. I mean... I I feel like we have a hundred different questions to keep going. Uh, your passion shines through. I've seen you operate a room. Uh, you're magnetic. And anybody out there wants to get hold of you or hear more from you, where do they find you? What's, what's your accessibility like? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm all over the place on LinkedIn. My business is called Lockstep. And our website is lockstep, L-O-C-K-S-T-E-P dot global. Or you could email me directly, which would be amazing, Rowan, R-O-W-A-N, at lockstep.global. But I've got a big digital footprint, not as big as you guys, but big enough to find out there. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd welcome. And in fact, I'd say this. If anyone is just interested in a conversation about picking some of these ideas around, I'm so up for that. So, you know, it doesn't even have to be any kind of a formal engagement. I'm just up. I'm up for connecting with fellow world travelers on this journey of getting business to rebirth itself. And uh, anyone who's keen for that, I'm keen to talk to you. I think as our first guest, you're so aligned with what we're doing. And it's been by no mistake that we've got you here. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. And I'm going to let Eric close it out. Yeah, listen, gents. Um, thank you, Rowan. I feel uh, better this morning for having had this conversation, which is exactly what this pod is about as well, as much as it's about... Um, sending good vibes and uh, new experiences into the world. It's also for us to learn and to grow. And I definitely feel like that's happened this morning. So, so thank you for that. And as always, uh, thank you for all of our listeners for joining and tuning into the pod. Uh, we love having you on this journey with us as we try to be more expansive and live more expansive and do business in a more expansive kind of way as well. So thank you for coming on this journey with us and entertaining many of the different ideas that we share on this pod. Uh, as always as well we'd love for you to uh, leave a review for us on iTunes uh, we love seeing what you are thinking about the pod uh, often it feels like we operate in a bit of isolation in a bit of a echo chamber echo chamber echo chamber That's what a I'm box echo chamber exactly exactly yeah. uh, and so we love hearing from you and, and knowing what you think about the pod and so the best way to give us some feedback is to head over to iTunes and to leave us uh, not a one, two, three, or four-star review, but a five-star review, as always. Uh, thank you very much for uh, tuning in, and we'll see you again next time. Be expensive. Ciao.